On the morning of October 14, 1903, the headline on the front page of the Boston Post read, World's Champions Boston went 3-0, most remarkable series in history of the diamond reviewed by experts. In fact, newspapers all over America had similar headlines. That's because on the afternoon of the 13th, the Boston Americans, the team that eventually became the Red Sox, had beaten the Pittsburgh Pirates in a new kind of baseball series, and Boston sports writers were taking a victory lap. Throughout the entire series, Boston played as champions should play, the article read. According to the paper, when Boston won the final game, the fans were so thrilled that the bleachers swayed, they rushed the field and hoisted the champions onto their shoulders. Every man was a hero. Every man had done his share to bring the honor supreme in the baseball world to the hub. These sports writers weren't exactly in a gracious mood either. The Pittsburgh team, they wrote, played without spirit. The fallen champions had finally met their Waterloo. With bat bags on their shoulders, without a friend to whisper a word of cheer or sympathy, they passed beyond the gate. If it feels like they went out of their way to rub it in, well, it's because they did. The eight-game series between Boston and Pittsburgh was the first World Series ever to be played, and in the minds of the fans, players, and press, it wasn't just the end of a long, bitter dispute. It finally settled the question of which league, the American or national, reigned supreme. The celebration in Boston was worthy of the occasion. Fans were signaling the victory as a Boston win had never been celebrated before. Marching bands were parading through Harvard Square and down Columbus Avenue. A saloon owner named Michael T. McGreevy led a group of fans into his own bar and let them dance on the countertops. Which isn't quite as surprising when you consider that McGreevy also led a fan club known as the Loyal Rooters. During games, they would heckle Pittsburgh players from the stands, singing songs and performing all types of antics to distract them. Their enthusiasm seemed to be matched by the Pittsburgh faithful. During the series, more than 150 fans paid to see games in Pittsburgh and Boston, while even more tuned in via the wire. Gate receipts at the stadium added up to more than $75,000, which today would be about $2.7 million. Not only that, it's believed that more than 50 grand in gambling changed hands. Not to mention what an event like this would probably do for the local economy. You know, with people going to pubs and taking fares and all that. This was a sporting event unlike anything America had ever experienced. And it's a little peek into America in the early 20th century, when baseball was capturing the hearts and minds of Americans everywhere. The consensus seemed to be that this event, this first ever World Series that finally settled which league was best, was one of the greatest things ever to happen to the sport. Ultimately, that would prove to be true. Today, the World Series is what every team aspires to win. But things almost turned out very differently. A bitter rivalry, pettiness, and the stubbornness of just a few people nearly derailed the whole thing. But McGraw didn't like Pulliam, and John T. Brush didn't like Pulliam, and anything Pulliam supported, you know, their first reaction was, we don't like it. He's a very bright, very clever, charismatic, authoritarian leader. And you do it his way or you don't do it anyway. I'm Stuart Barefoot, and this is Obscure Ball, 
a sports storytelling podcast. And that story is next. So if you're new here, it's probably worth mentioning that Obscure Ball is an independently produced podcast. There's no sponsor, no affiliate links, or even a Patreon. It's just me and my company, Small League Productions, and I lean heavily on listener support. So if you enjoy these episodes, please share it with a friend or colleague or really anyone you know who likes sports and good storytelling. I make these episodes in my free time for people to enjoy, so the more people who listen, the better. Also, there is a donation link in the description. If you can spare it, it would be greatly appreciated and would go towards making more episodes like the one you're about to hear. Okay, on to the episode. And just a quick note about it. It is chapter three of a three-part series, but you don't need to listen in order. So stay here, finish listening to this episode, and you can check out chapters one and two later. This one is called Circa 1904, chapter three, The Grudge. It was uh, an era of rough-and-tumble baseball, uh, a lot of connections to gamblers, a lot of fighting, kicking, they called it at the time. A lot of disrespect for umpires, and, uh, you know, these were just rough guys who fought each other. Floyd Sullivan is the author of Called Out, a fictional novel based on the real events of 1908. You can learn more about that and the episode I did called Take Nothing for Granted. The protagonist in Floyd's story is a man named Harry Pulliam, who was hired in 1902 to be the first ever National League president. As Floyd alluded to, the league was at a crisis point, with attendance shrinking and players misbehaving on and off the field. So Pulliam was seen as something of a reformer who believed that baseball could be a sport that everyone enjoyed. So he set out making a lot of reforms to help clean up the league. And you know, he, was a, he, he wrote poetry and he was interested in the arts. And uh, so he saw that part of baseball, the beauty of baseball. And so when he, when he was put in a position of power, he tried to apply those standards to the game and essentially pull the game kicking and screaming out of the 19th century and into the 20th century. But as he pulled them kicking and screaming into the 20th century, the league faced another problem. The newly formed American League, who in today's terms would be considered a disruptor. There was tension there, I believe, I guess, between the American League and the National Leagues, correct? Yes, it was left over from the wars, what they called the baseball wars, where they, the main issue was uh, raiding the uh, American League, raiding the National League of its players. The Cubs in particular were rated uh, significantly. I think they lost 30 players or something. There, there, so there was a lot of bitterness. Then the National League would try to raid the American League right back. And there was a, a couple of uh, contract disputes that were very, very heated. Ah, the baseball wars. To summarize how it got to that point, you probably first need to understand that the National League kind of operated as a monopoly when it came to professional baseball. Other leagues would form and then disband, and the National League would absorb some of their teams. So pro players at the time really had nowhere else to go if they were unhappy with their team management or the league. They were basically stuck in their contracts, and team owners exploited that to the max, figuring, hey, there was no real competition, so what's the difference? But then, 
The American League came along in the early 1900s and completely shifted that dynamic. The architect behind the whole thing was a guy named Van Johnson. I think it's kind of interesting that he had a personality that didn't, I mean, kind of a rebel, where he, he didn't stay in school like his father wanted him to. Cindy Thompson is a freelance writer who has written about early 20th century baseball. And she also co-authored Johnson's bio for Sabre. And uh, then he, he got a job as a sports writer, a journalist. And his father didn't like that so much. But that kind of propelled him to, to uh, get into baseball and make the connections that eventually got him to the Western League where they asked him to take that over. So it was a, a stepping stone and not the traditional way that his parents probably envisioned him going. And he just kind of paved his own way his whole life, I think. He eventually became head of a scrappy little startup called the Western League, which started to make some noise in the 1890s. Up until around 1900, it was a minor league, confined mostly to the West and Midwest. But then the league established teams in big markets like Baltimore, Boston, Philadelphia, and D.C., which was not a coincidence. The National League had dropped teams in those very cities. So Johnson figured there was already a market for baseball there, which was correct. With teams all over the country now, not just in the West or Midwest, the name Western League was obsolete. So Johnson changed the name to the American League and then declared that his new entity was a major league, on par with their National League rivals. Meanwhile, the National League was furious, but were in no position to fight back. The league was a total mess. Attendance was dropping and players were unhappy with their contracts. So the American League actively courted those players and were pretty successful. One was uh, George Davis, for instance, who was uh, had contracts with both the uh, New York Giants and I believe it was the Chicago, at the time they were called the Chicago White Stockings, who became the Chicago White Sox. And then, uh, I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce this guy's name right, but Ed uh, Delahanty, he apparently had three ironclad contracts with various teams in, in both leagues. If that weren't bad enough, Johnson would troll the National League by moving teams to the same cities where they already had established clubs, like St. Louis and Philadelphia. This made it easier to not only attract fans, but also to lure players into jumping ship. The St. Louis Browns were formed and actively recruited players from the more established Cardinals. He even publicly teased the idea of moving a team to Pittsburgh to compete directly with the best team in the world at the time, the Pittsburgh Pirates. Things got ugly. The National League tried to fight back, but were already quarreling so much amongst themselves that they had a hard time organizing to fend off their new rival. Eventually, they ended up going to court, a lot, alleging that the American League was breaking some kind of contract. That turned out not to be so great, because teams were spread out across different states all over the country, and each team operated under different jurisdictions and different judges across the country had different interpretations as to what was legal and what wasn't. Still, as a general rule, the court seemed to favor the American League, just adding to the pile of problems the National League now faced. So after two seasons of attrition, anger, and bitterness, the leagues got together 
and hammered out a deal in early 1903. And even though Johnson and the American League were firmly in the driver's seat, Pulliam and the National League boldly proposed that the leagues emerge and that the four American League teams and National League cities would be dissolved. (laughs) Johnson didn't do it. He defiantly left the meeting and came back a few days later with his own proposal. The National League would have to honor all existing contracts, even the ones of players that jumped ship. In return, the only concession he offered was not making good on his threat to move a team to Pittsburgh. But even that came with its own condition. He was allowed to move his Baltimore franchise to New York, where the National League already had the Giants. The National League really had no choice but to accept it. It was a bitter truce for everyone aside from Johnson and the American League team owners. But it was a truce all the same. And from it came the National Agreement, which set up a commission that governed the two leagues. So that's how the 1903 season began. Boston cruised to an American League pennant win in 91 games, while Pittsburgh won their third straight National League pennant, also with 91 games. In their minds, the Pirates were still the team in America and wanted to prove to the world that they were better than the team in Boston. So Pittsburgh team owner Barney Dreyfus proposed to Boston owner Harry Kalela that the league champions play a best-of-nine series. Pulliam, who again was the newly installed National League president, understood that it was a great business opportunity for the game and rallied support among most of the league owners to support it. Most being the operative word. More on that part later. Johnson, who had gone full Machiavellian by this point, apparently wasn't done punishing the National League, so he signed off on the idea, telling Boston that they must beat Pittsburgh. And they did, in eight games. And even though it was a bitter pill for Pulliam and the National League to swallow, it became clear very quickly that this new series was good for baseball and good for business. The Pirates might have lost, but they made so much money from ticket sales that every single player got a bonus. Players might not have been thrilled with being locked into their contracts, but the prospect of getting a sizable bonus at the end of each season? Well, that meant the stakes were higher than ever. They knew it. The fans knew it. The press knew it. Every game, especially later in the season, suddenly became more important. For baseball fans, players, and executives, it seemed like a new tradition was born, and 1904 couldn't come soon enough. But in 1904, not everyone was into the idea. In 1904, a lot of hard feelings from the baseball wars were still lingering. In 1904, there'd be no World Series. That's next. One reason it takes me way too long to make these episodes is that I also have a day job where I make podcasts. Right now, I'm working with Castos, a podcast software and hosting service to make original shows. One of them is called Audience, where I go behind the scenes of all different kinds of podcasts and talk with the creators about their creative process. We recently launched season two, and I want to share that trailer with you now. If you're at all curious about the world of audio creation, the show is probably worth checking out. Okay, enjoy. Hey there, my name is Stuart, and I'm the host and producer of a podcast called Audience. Audience is an original series by Castos, and at its core, I guess you could say it's a podcast about podcasting. 
which I know probably seems kind of meta. Even still, I think it's worth checking out because each episode, I go behind the scenes of all kinds of podcasts and chat with audio creators of all stripes. In season two, a singer and songwriter collaborates with his own fans to tell stories. More than anything, I'm trying to get them to like articulate their story as best as possible, you know, because some, some people might have a great story, but don't tell it well. The creators of an acclaimed podcast called Endless Thread give us a behind-the-scenes look at how they craft stories. We made an episode that was about a mountain of dishware that someone found in the woods and they couldn't remember where it was and they had no idea why it was there but it was like 60 feet long 20 plus feet high two buddies started a podcast about seinfeld and along the way created a tight-knit community it's a great way to connect with people it's a great way to find out there are so many other people like you that really appreciate this show and want to be a part of something and i think that makes you feel like you belong you're a part of something and it's great being able to bring that to people plus an art educator turned producer brings art to life in a unique way because a podcast is interesting an art lecture is not you know the audio guide that you get at the museum is boring but a podcast is interesting and so it gave me the opportunity to make art history as interesting as people thought podcasts were So join me in my pursuit of producing better shows and uncovering the business that powers audio creators. Season 2 is now available anywhere you get your podcasts and online at audiencepodcast.fm. We're less interested in the bullet points of like what's the top Google hit for that subject as we are in really getting into the nitty gritty of their process. How would you describe John McGraw? Huh. Well, in the current days, uh, the, the, the current era, they would say he's a, an asshole. But, <laughs> uh, uh, he, I spoke with Don Jensen, who's a diplomat by day and a baseball writer on the side. Among the many things he's written, he wrote the official Saber bio for McGraw. And if ever there was an interesting bio to write, this would be at somewhere near the top of the list. Describing McGraw to anyone unfamiliar with him kind of feels like describing some kind of folk legend. The record is obvious that as the manager of the Giants, he uh, won, I think, 10 pennants, three World Series, and remains even today the in a franchise, I'm a Giants fan, a franchise with really a history comparable almost to the Yankees of uh, history. He remains in many ways a, a uh, iconic figure of the team. McGraw was a person who was born into poverty and clawed his way into professional baseball. He played for the first iteration of the Baltimore Orioles during the 1890s, a team that was notorious for their dirty play. They'd employ tactics like tackling runners or grabbing them by the belts to prevent them from scoring. Even as an 18-year-old rookie in 1891, McGraw was the ringleader of this band of vicious but talented rabble-rousers and epitomized the dirty but talented type of player of the National League. In a piece for Baltimore Magazine, Ron Cassie compared them to the Irish Mafia. Seems like an apt comparison. These guys wouldn't hesitate to use violence against their opponents or even umpires. McGraw spent 17 years in the big leagues, 
posted a career batting average of 334. In 1899, he led the National League with a 547 on-base percentage. So this guy got on base more than half the time. Be it a hit, a walk, or getting hit by a pitch, McGraw got on base and scored runs, all while manning third base effectively. His scrappiness and knowledge of the game made him an ideal manager, albeit kind of a tyrant. At just 5'7", he earned the nickname Little Napoleon. He's a very bright, very clever, uh, charismatic, authoritarian leader. And you do it his way or you don't do it anyway. Floyd has a less forgiving view of John McGraw. It made him one of the main antagonists of his novel. It was a very rowdy game, as we talked about. And I think I used the comparison to a Lower East Side rat fight. As I said, John McGraw was one of the proponents. He believed that anything he could do, any trick, anything, whether it was in the rule book or against the rules that he could use to win a game, he would do it. And uh, he brought that mentality with him to the Giants when he came from the uh, American League Baltimore Orioles early in the 20th century. To keep a long story less long, McGraw ended up working for Ban Johnson in 1901. Around the same time that the National League Baltimore Orioles folded, Johnson was busy with his efforts to expand the American League. And like I mentioned earlier, he was replacing teams in cities where National League teams closed up shop with a brand new American League team. Since Baltimore was a pretty elite team, at least on the field during the 1890s, Johnson decided to keep the name. So it gets a little confusing because it was technically an entirely new team, a new franchise and a new league. So with all the newness, who better to lead the new Orioles than a Baltimore legend? McGraw was hired to be a player manager, but also got an ownership stake in the team. On the surface, it all seemed like a pretty sweet deal. But his intense on-the-field behavior clashed with Johnson's vision of the game. Well, he, he did come with some different ideas. He wanted to clean up the game and do that because he wanted to increase attendance. So if you can make it family-friendly, uh, more acceptable to women in that era. So there was that underlying, you know, we'll make more money, we'll get better attendance. But he did want to make it, he did want to clean it up. And one of the things I think is admirable about him is that he supported the umpires. He, he uh, increased their wages. He um, made penalties strong penalties for bad behavior against the umpires on the field. And that kind of changed things, cleaned things up a bit. So in other words, Johnson and McGraw were pretty much exact opposites. So the two clashed. Though there were some similarities. In the same way McGraw ran his team like a tyrant, Johnson ruled the American League with an iron fist. He was even nicknamed the Tsar and would waste no time suspending and fining McGraw for any transgression, i.e., the way he had pretty much always played the game. Suffice to say, McGraw and Johnson's relationship was not awesome. By 1902, McGraw was looking for a way out of his contract in Baltimore. He began covertly building alliances with other baseball people. One of the people he turned to was an executive named John T. Brush. He was a businessman, and um, he bought the Giants, I, th I think, strictly as a business investment. And he wanted maximum return 
on his investment. There, there are a lot of examples of uh, John T. Brush making decisions or, or working pretty much exclusively to maximize his profits. Brush's days of baseball ownership date all the way back to the 1890s when he owned a team in the Western League called the Indianapolis Hoosiers. During that time, he developed a reputation as an old miser who engineered a plan to limit players' salaries. He also bought the Cincinnati Reds of the National League and would shuffle players between the two teams, depending on which team was making more money at any given point. The players hated it, the fans hated it, and perhaps most importantly, Johnson, the president of the Western League at the time of which the Hoosiers were a member, hated it. And he and Brush butted heads over the process. Brush grew tired of it and eventually sold off the Hoosiers, but still seemed to hold a grudge against Johnson. That set the stage for the final and most dramatic battle of the baseball wars. Back to 1902, McGraw was still with the Orioles and things were going very poorly. He kept getting hurt, would get suspended, and the Orioles were losing a lot of games. Remember, this was a new team entirely. They weren't the Orioles of the 1890s. So by the time McGraw reached his breaking point, he had been secretly devising a plan with Brush to get out of Baltimore and screw over Johnson, the Orioles, and the American League in the process. On June 18th, he put his plan into action. The Orioles were on the road playing in St. Louis. McGraw stayed behind under the pretense of recovering from an injury. However, he decided to use that time to travel to New York, where he met with Giants owner Andrew Friedman. Like any other owner from the National League, Friedman wanted to do anything he could to destroy Johnson and the American League, so he convinced McGraw to jump ship and come be the player manager for the Giants. This was several months before the ratification of the National Agreement, so there wasn't really anything keeping McGraw in Baltimore. He agreed and decided he was going to make a memorable exit. June 28th. 1902. McCarl had recovered enough from his injury to return to the Orioles lineup, so he met up with his teammates in Boston for two games against the American-slash-future Red Sox. In the second game of the series, he was played more like his old self. He led off with a triple and later scored in the first inning. In the seventh inning, he reached base on a bunt and then immediately stole second base. He was also acting a lot like his old self. Baltimore was trailing 9-4 in the 8th inning when a would-be Oriole comeback was bungled either by a base running error or a bad call by umpire Tommy Connolly depending on whose version of events you believe. Either way, the incident sent McGraw into such a fit of rage that he was ejected from the game. But he refused to leave and things got so bad that Connolly declared the game a forfeit. According to the Boston Globe, McGraw threatened to hang Connolly, who ended up needing a police escort to leave the field. And that is how McGraw's time in Baltimore came to a dramatic end. Johnson suspended him again, and McGraw told the press he was finally done. Of course, he could have just quit and then joined the Giants, but a person like John McGraw doesn't just quit and gracefully move on. 
he decided to commit one more final act of treachery against his old nemesis. That meeting McGraw had with Friedman set into motion one of the dirtiest moves of the baseball wars. Remember earlier how I said that McGraw actually owned the majority share of the Orioles? Well, he promptly sold those to his co-conspirator, John Brush, when he quit. Brush, who, remember, had previous run-ins with Johnson, began tanking the Orioles. He traded off many of the team's best players to the Giants, the team McGraw joined soon after ditching the Orioles. Johnson quickly caught on to what was going on and used his powers as league president to kick Brush out of the league, making his tenure as Orioles owner very brief. Brush didn't care, because he then sold off the Reds, the other team he owned, and bought out the Giants from Friedman, the very team he had just stacked with the top players from the Reds and Orioles. This was all part of the plan. Friedman, Brush, and McGraw pulled off a coup, and Johnson was understandably furious. The Reds survived just fine without Brush, but the Orioles were doomed. Between player contracts being sold off and injuries, they had to forfeit a game against St. Louis on July 17th. The rest of the season was a complete disaster, and they finished dead last in the American League at 50, 88, and 3. Back then, you could still tie games. Worst of all, the Orioles were a financial disaster too. As the team plummeted towards last place, attendance dropped with it. The team seemed dead in the water. But this wasn't over. Far from it. Johnson had a few more tricks up his sleeve. 1903 was going to be Brush and McGraw's first full season in New York, and with a loaded roster, they were ready to challenge the Pirates for the league's top spot. Meanwhile, the Baltimore Orioles were bankrupt, so Johnson needed a buyer, and quick. He found them, though they weren't really his ideal candidates. Big Bill Devery, a police commissioner in New York City, who had a reputation for corruption, and Pull Hall King Frank Farrell, another guy with a less than stellar reputation, took him up on his offer. These guys were both deeply embedded in New York politics and Tammany Hall, a very, very corrupt relationship. They likely made millions together through their corrupt endeavors. Always looking for a business opportunity and probably believing they could use their ties to politicians and gamblers to further enrich themselves, they bought the Orioles and moved them to their own stomping grounds in Manhattan. The polo grounds were situated just north of Central Park, literally blocks away from where the Giants played at the polo grounds. And thus, a new team was born, the New York Highlanders. As a little aside, they'd eventually become the New York Yankees, which is how the Orioles became the Yankees, and then, well, there's another Orioles later. By the way, if you think that McGraw and Brush had the moral high ground here, they really didn't. John McGraw, for instance, had a pool hall in Herald Square. I think he might have had up, and up as many as three pool halls in Herald Square. And at that time, Tammany uh, um, ran a protection scheme. You know, it was typical uh, mob stuff where, okay, you have to pay us off, otherwise you can't open a pool hall. 
So he had to basically subscribe to Tammany Protection in order to open that pool hall. And he was connected with Pimlico in Baltimore back when he was on the Baltimore Orioles and all kinds of stuff. It, it, uh, gambling and connection to Tammany Hall in particular was rampant. And Don Jensen seems to agree. Who knows? <laughs> I would not be surprised. Yeah. Which is to say, if you ever saw the, uh, ever see the movie The Sting? No. Oh, it's just about a crime in 1920s Chicago. And, and when Paul Newman tells Redford or vice versa, what's the use of being a grifter if it's the same as being a citizen? <laughs> and I think uh, McGraw lived in that black, gray, that gray area, consorting with, no doubt, gamblers and all that kind of thing. So, Brush probably wasn't exactly clean either. If you heard the episode Take Nothing for Granted, you may recall that in October of 1908, Joseph Kramer, the team doctor for the Giants, attempted to bribe two umpires in a crucial game. It's pretty much accepted that Brush instructed him to do so. In that situation, the umps didn't do it, but it was part of a deeply rooted problem in baseball at the time. As Floyd has said, it was a rowdy game that attracted gamblers, and it was not unheard of for them to conspire with players, coaches, and umpires to throw games. It was so rampant. And one of the, the effects of the National League not following up on the attempted bribe of those umpires is that the gambling continued, the thrown games continued, they used to call it laying down, players would lay down for games, continued for another 10 years until it reached its reached ahead in 1919 with the Black Sox when they threw the, uh, the World Series to Cincinnati. Anyway, getting back to the story at hand. This move kind of made sense for Johnson. Starting an American League team in an established baseball city was pretty par for the course. But it had to be a little silver lining for him that moving a team a few blocks away from his old foes would ruffle their feathers. And it did. Debray and Farrell quickly commissioned a new stadium on a ridge right near Broadway that overlooked the Hudson River. The Polo Grounds was a few blocks away just north of Central Park. Farrell, Devery, and Johnson were so eager to play in New York that when the season began in April of 1903, the stadium wasn't even finished. With a totally revamped roster, the newly minted New York Highlanders were far better than their predecessors in Baltimore. They went 72-62-2 in 1903, good enough for fourth place in the American League. The Giants, meanwhile, had their own remarkable turnaround. They won 84 games, which put them in second place behind the Pirates. More than half a million people turned up to the Polo Grounds to see the Giants play, while only just over 200,000 people went to see the Highlanders play at their new stadium, Hilltop Park. All of that is to say, by virtually every metric, the Giants had a much better situation going for them than their American League counterparts. But McGraw and Brush still saw Johnson's move as an affront. They had hoped to destroy him and weaken the American League on the way out. Instead, they helped contrive a situation that put a competitor directly in their own backyard. They didn't like it, and it set the stage for the ultimate showdown of attrition, pettiness, and immaturity. So let's recap the situation and take stock of all these different people involved. First, there's Ben Johnson, known as the Tsar an ambitious executive determined to turn the American League into a powerhouse 
and willing to step on toes and work with organized criminals to get there. He's bitter over McGraw's exit from Baltimore and mad at Brush for helping him out. Then there's John McGraw, little Napoleon, a brilliant, quick-tempered, stubborn manager who despised anyone who exercised any authority over him, including Johnson and his new league president, Pulliam. He'll oppose any idea they champion. Then there's John Brush, an old miser who cares nothing for baseball and didn't like the fact that a new team was building a stadium right near his. Sure, the Giants might have drawn more fans than the Highlanders, but these new intruders were drawing fans away from the polo grounds and hurting his bottom line. He didn't like it. And then there's Harry Pulliam, probably the guy we've talked about the least, yet the most likable of the bunch. And he had his own issues with both Brush and McGraw. Uh, when Harry Pulliam was elected president over the course of the season of the offseason between 1902 and 1903, John T. Brush was the one owner who voted against him over and over again until finally he had to relent and uh, Pulliam was installed as president. So he he didn't like Pulliam from the start. Also, uh, Brush had tried to organize um, various syndicates that would take over the management of the National League. And Harry was against that and tried to fight those attempts every step of the way. And Brush would try to bring in other uh, owners on his side to create this, uh, this syndicate in which Brush himself would have final say over, over the uh, business of, of baseball, of National League anyway. So uh, Harry was against that. He fought against that. Uh, Harry, of course, was uh, famous for uh, disciplining players and managers, for rowdyism, for kicking, as they called it. And, of course, uh, John McGraw was one of the worst offenders. He had he and his uh, National League Baltimore Orioles of the 1890s were infamous for their brawling ways. And uh, Harry's goal, once he was installed as president, was to stop that. But McGraw didn't like Pulliam, and John T. Brush didn't like Pulliam, and anything Pulliam supported, you know, their first reaction was, we don't like it. So you have all these people who all seem to have some kind of emotional entanglement, and no one really seems to like each other. So now, finally, we get back to 1904. With their rebuild complete, the Giants cruised to the National League pennant that year. Led by pitching legends like Joe McGinnity and Christy Mathewson, they won 106 games. No one else was even close to being as good. The second place Cubs were a full 13 games back, and the Pirates, once seen as the team to beat, had fallen all the way to fourth place. The American League, on the other hand, was a different story entirely. All season long, Boston and the New York Highlanders were neck and neck for the lead while the White Sox and Cleveland Naps loomed close behind. In the final weeks of the season, the prospect that New York City could have two teams in the World Series kept the whole city at edge. As one columnist put it, the public, and New Yorkers in particular, were so supportive of the game that they deemed it their right to be treated to a World Series, an event that they'd known about for less than a year at this point. For their part, the Highlanders were totally on board. Their manager, Clark Griffith, had made it known that they would formally challenge McGraw and the Giants to a World Series matchup. On top of that, 
Farrell and Devery had promised to donate half of their proceedings from the World Series to a charity of the mayor's choice. Now, given the corrupt ties between these guys and City Hall, this probably wasn't all that altruistic. But in any case, it was a clever PR stunt that surely would have persuaded the cold heart of John McGraw. Right? It was not necessarily a foregone conclusion, and a Brush and McGraw both uh, were bitterly against it. Johnson, or any other team for that matter, had no contractual obligation to play in the World Series, and he made it known to the press that the team would have no part of a World Series or any kind of contest with the American League. Never, while I am manager of the New York club, while the club holds the pennant, while I consent to enter into a haphazard box office game with Ben Johnson and company. It didn't matter that the fans, the press, and most other players wanted a World Series. The mere fact that playing in it would have meant cooperating with Johnson, the American League, and to some extent, Pulliam, was a deal-breaker. The league presidents were powerless to do anything about it. McGraw publicly defended his actions, saying that once all the facts came out, popular opinion would be on his side. The opposite actually happened. The press absolutely buried him, and fans weren't particularly happy about it either. As the Washington Post put it, Fans were willing to look past McGraw's antics on the field and even his sketchy exit from Baltimore, given that he was a genuine baseball genius. But depriving them of a World Series was not something they could tolerate. The actions of the officials of the New York club have already cost the Giants the well wishes and friendships of heretofore loyal supporters who in the future will throw their support behind the New York American League club. It was even rumored that his own players were miffed that they had lost out on a chance at earning a bonus, since a portion of the gate receipts were given to players. That part's kind of ironic, because the one group of people who were consistently in McGraw's corner were his own players. McGinnity once told the press that McGraw was the best manager he'd ever played for. McGraw has the ability to get more out of a ball team than any man I ever saw. McGinnity also said that if they had played against Boston in the World Series, they'd have given them a quote-unquote good run for their money. He was probably right, but we'll never know for sure. When the season ended and the dust of the American League pennant race settled, Boston won by a game and a half and formally challenged the Giants to a World Series. But Johnson and Brush held their position and refused to play. While it's hard to argue they were really breaking any kind of long precedent or sacred tradition, again, the World Series had existed for a year at this point. Their actions wouldn't be repeated for another nine decades. Well, it is now official. No more regular season, no extended version of the playoffs, and for the first time since 1904, no World Series, Brendan. It's not pretty. Yogi Berra said it ain't over till it's over. He was talking about the 73 Mets. Now Yogi could say this one's definitely over. The World Series has been played on in the midst of two world wars, in the midst of the Depression era, but now in 1994, in the midst of the greed era in Major League Baseball, no World Series, no more baseball this year. TSN's Rod Smith reports. As they say, time heals all things. On October 15, 1905, the headline of the Boston Post read, New York and Philadelphia series eclipsed everything else in the two cities. The New York Times described the wild scene. 10,000 throats bellowed forth a tribute that would have almost drowned out a broadside. That was the scene at the Polo Grounds on October 14th. Christy Mathewson got Philadelphia Athletic Lave Cross to ground out to end the game, which was the final out of the World Series. 
the Giants had again won the pennant in 05. And this time, they had to play in the World Series. And they didn't resist because Brush knew that he would make more money. And they, they expected to win in 1905 again. They had by far the best team in the National League. Also, they really didn't have a choice since their obstinance compelled the league to codify an official postseason. Harry Pulliam was a big champion of the idea. Before he met his tragic end, detailed in the episode Take Nothing for Granted, Pulliam helped usher in a new era of the game. He would institute or try to institute anything he could think of to improve the game, to make it better, to make it uh, less dangerous, to make it more fun, to make it more artistic. His counterpart, Van Johnson, was equally innovative, but ran into his own issues and was eventually pushed out of the very league he helped create. He had the friends and the connections and got things to go his way um, until he started ruling against some of the people that, you know, were helping him and contracts didn't go their way and the conflict with the owners, the different owners. And so eventually it was his death. John Brush's health declined quickly after he bought the Giants in 1902 and he spent his last years in a wheelchair. Even still, one of the few remaining remnants of the polo grounds is a steep winding staircase named after him. John McGraw went on to manage the Giants for 30 years, winning more than 2,700 games, which is third best all-time among managers. He was also ejected 121 times, which is second only to Bobby Cox. He died in 1934 and was inducted into the Hall of Fame three years later. His influence on the team is, is so profound that even today in San Francisco, not New York, they rebuilt his pool hall speakeasy in the ballpark. So probably the most iconic manager in the team's history, which is about 140 years, and also a Hall of Famer, of course, and a great ball player for the old Orioles in the 1890s. Finally, it should be noted that that 1904 American League pennant race was the beginning of one of the greatest rivalries in all of sports. The Boston Americans eventually became the Red Sox, and the New York Highlanders became the Yankees. And we all know how that evolved. So, that's the end of the 1904 series. After about a year of research and producing these stories, I can say confidently, it's one of the most fascinating eras of sports in American history. Well, baseball is always a reflector of societal change. Mm. And it, it was America assimilating immigrants. Mm. It was America enduring the, uh, the injust social injustice of the industrial age. I think it's fascinating. There's such colorful characters and the stories that come out of it. The fact that it's the baseball that we we know today, modern baseball that we can follow, and yet it was different. And 1904 was a very, very successful year for baseball in general, both leagues. And uh, the, uh, the fan base was growing. Uh, you mentioned 1908 as being the year that really defined baseball as America's pastime, but it, that was already in the works, largely thanks to Harry Pulliam, by 1904. Obscure Ball is presented by Small League Productions. A special thanks to Floyd Sullivan, Cindy Thompson, and Don Jensen for their contributions to this episode. 
Music comes from the Storyblocks libraries and Blue Dot Sessions. This episode, like all others, was written, edited, narrated, and produced by me. I'm Stuart Barefoot. More episodes are available wherever you get your podcast and online at ObscureBallPod.com. And please, stay tuned to this feed because at some point there will be another episode. I just don't know when. <laughs>